22. Have it falls on a white screen and forms an image of the candle. Observe that the image is inverted. In a well-lighted room focus the light from a window upon a white screen. Show that, as the distance from the window to the screen is changed, the position of the lens must also be changed. Accommodation. 6. Hold a piece of cardboard, about 8 inches square and having a smooth, round hole an eighth of an inch in diameter in the center, in front of a lighted candle in a darkened room. Back of the opening place a muslin or paper screen figure 157. Observe that again image is formed. Account for the fact that it is inverted. Hold a lens between the cardboard and the screen so that the light passes through it also. The image should now appear smaller and more distinct. Figure 166 Figure 166 Diagram for proving presence of the blind spot. To prove the presence of the blind spot. Close the left eye and with the right gaze steadily at the spot on the left side of this page figure 166. Then starting with the book a foot or more from the face, move it slowly toward the eye. A place will be found where the spot on the right entirely disappears. On bringing it nearer, however, it is again seen. As the book is moved forward or backward, the position of the image of the spot changes on the retina. When the spot cannot be seen, it is because the image falls on the blind spot. Dissection of the eyeball. Procure from the butcher two or three eyeballs obtained from cattle. After separating the fat, connective tissue, and muscle, place them in a shallow vessel and cover with water. Insert the blade of a pair of sharp scissors at the junction of the sclerotic rotic coat with the cornea and cut from this point nearly around the entire circumference of the eyeball. Passing near the optic nerve. Spread open in the water and identify the different parts from the description in the text. Open the second eyeball in water by cutting away the cornea. Examine the parts in front of the lens. Figure 167 Figure 167 Model for demonstrating the eyeball. To illustrate accommodation, paste together the ends of a strip of stiff writing paper 2 by 5 inches making a ring a little less than 3 inches in diameter. This is to represent the crystalline lens. Now paste a piece of thin paper 2 by 7 inches upon a second strip of the same size leaving an open place in the middle for the insertion of the paper lens. A flexible piece of cardboard 3 by 12 inches is now bent into the form of a half circle and to its ends are fastened the strips of paper containing the ring. Make a small hole in each of the four corners of the bent cardboard. Through these holes pass two loops of thread, or fine string, in opposite directions, letting the ends hang loose from the cardboard. When everything is in position, the tension from the cardboard flattens the paper lens. While pulling the strings releases this tension and permits the lens to become more rounded. With a simple device the changes in the curvature of the lens for near and distant vision are easily shown. Chapter XXII The general problem of keeping well, to cure was the voice of the past, to prevent is the divine whispering of today. As stated in the introduction to our study, the fundamental law of hygiene is the law of harmony, habits of living must harmonize with the plan of the body. Having acquainted ourselves with the plan of the body, We may now review briefly those conditions that help or hinder its various activities. The hygiene already presented in connection with the study of the various organs may be condensed into general rules, or laws, as follows. 1. Of exercise, exercise daily the important groups of muscles. 2. Of form, preserve the natural form of the body. 3. Of energy, observe regular periods of rest and exercise and avoid exhaustion. 4. Of nutriment, eat moderately of a well-cooked and well-balanced diet and drink freely of pure water. 5. Of respiration, breathe freely and deeply of pure air and spend a part of each day out of doors. 6. 
of nervous poise, suppress wasteful and useless forms of nervous activity, avoid nervous strain, and practice cheerfulness. 7. Of cleanliness, keep the body and its immediate surroundings clean. 8. Of restraint, abstain from the unnecessary use of drugs as well as from the practice of any form of activity known to be harmful to the body. 9. Of elimination, observe all the conditions that favor the regular discharge of waste materials from the body. Obedience to these laws is of vast importance in the proper management of the body. They should, indeed, be so thoroughly impressed upon the mind as to become fixed habits. There are, however, other conditions that relate to this problem, and it is to these that we now turn. These conditions have reference more specifically to the prevention of disease. While the average length of life is not far from 35 years, the length of time which the average individual is capable of living island according to some of the lowest estimates, not less than 70 years, this difference is due to disease. People do not, as a rule, die on account of the wearing out of the body as seen in extreme old age, but on account of the various ills to which flesh is heir. It is true that many people meet death by accident and not a few are killed in wars, but these numbers are small in comparison with those that die of bodily disorders. The prevention of disease is the greatest of all human problems, though the fighting of disease is left largely to the physician. Much is to be gained through a more general knowledge of its causes and the methods of its prevention. Causes of disease. Disease which is some derangement of the vital functions, may be due to a variety of causes. Some of these causes, such as hereditary defects, are remote and beyond the control of the individual. Others are the result of negligence in the observance of well-recognized hygienic laws. Others still are of the nature of influences, such as climate, the house in which one lives, or one's method of gaining a livelihood, that produce changes in the body, imperceptible at the time, but, in the long run, laying the foundations of disease, and last, and most potent, are the minute living organisms, called microbes or germs, that find their way into the body, although there are two general kinds of germs, known as bacteria one-celled plants and protozoa one-celled animals, most of our germ diseases are caused by bacteria, effects of germs, while there are many kinds of germs that have no ill effect upon the body and others that are thought to aid it in its work. There are many well-known varieties that produce effects decidedly harmful. They gain an entrance through the lungs, food canal, or skin, and, living upon the fluids and tissues, multiply with great rapidity until they permeate the entire body. Not only do they destroy the protoplasm, but they form waste products, called toxins, which act as poisons. Diseases caused by germs are known as infectious, or contagious, diseases. 129 The list is a long one and includes smallpox, measles, diphtheria, scarlet fever, typhoid fever, tuberculosis, grip, malaria, yellow fever, and others of common occurrence. In addition to the diseases that are well pronounced, it is probable that germs are responsible also for certain bodily ailments of a milder character. 130 Avoidance of germ diseases The problem of preventing diseases caused by germs is an exceedingly difficult one and no solution for all diseases has yet been found. One's chances of avoiding such diseases, however, may be greatly enhanced, 1. By strengthening the body through hygienic living so that it offers greater resistance to the invasions of germs, 2. By living as far as possible under conditions that are unfavorable to germ life, 3. By understanding the agencies through which disease germs are spread from person to person. Conditions favorable and unfavorable for germs. 
Conditions favorable for germ life are supplied by animal and vegetable matter, moisture, and a moderate degree of warmth. Hence disease germs may be kept alive in damp cellars and places of filth. Even living rooms that are poorly lighted or ventilated may harbor them. Water may, if it contain a small percent of organic matter, support such dangerous germs as those of typhoid fever, fresh air, sunlight, dryness, cleanliness, and a high temperature. On the other hand, are destructive of germs. The germs in impure water, as already noted page 165, are destroyed by boiling. How germs are spread. Some of the more common methods by which the germs of disease are spread, and by so doing find new victims, are as follows. 1. By means of foods. Foods, on account of the locality in which they are produced or the method of gathering or of handling them, may become contaminated with germs, which are then transported with the foods to the consumer. 2. By means of dust. Material containing germs, e.g. discharges from the throat and lungs, will on drying form dust. This is lifted with other fine particles by the air and may be carried quite a distance. The dust from public halls and other places where people congregate is the kind most likely to contain disease germs. Dust should be breathed as little as possible and only through the nostrils, where one is compelled, as in sweeping, to breathe dust-laden air for some time. He should inhale through a moistened sponge, or cloth, tied in front of the nostrils. 3. By means of domestic pets and different kinds of household vermin. Germs sticking to the bodies of small animals are carried about and may be easily communicated to people. By this means, rats, mice, bedbugs, etc. where such exist, are frequently the means of spreading disease, and particularly dangerous. On this account, is the common house fly, feeding as it does on filth of all kinds, it is easy for it to transfer the bacteria that may stick to its body to the food which is supplied to the table. The proper screening of houses and the destruction of material in which flies may develop, such as the refuse from stables, are necessary precautions. Germs are spread also by the clothing of people, by railroad and steamship lines, by the mails, and by the natural elements. In fact, any kind of carrier, in or upon which germs can live, may serve as a means of spreading those of certain kinds. Public sanitation the general conditions under which germs may thrive and some of the means by which they are scattered, emphasize the practical value of measures which have for their purpose the making of one's surroundings more wholesome and hygienic. Such measures may be directed both toward one's immediate surroundings the home and toward the neighborhood, town, or city in which one lives. The hygienic conditions of primary importance in every city or town are as follows. 1. An adequate public supply of pure water. 2. An efficient system of underground pipes for the removal of sewage. 3. An efficient system for removing from the streets and alleys everything of the nature of waste. 4. Prevention. By enforcement of ordinances. Of spinning upon sidewalks and the floors of public halls and conveyances. 5. A hospital or sanitarium in which people can be cared for when sick with infectious diseases. In the larger cities other hygienic measures demand attention. Such as provisions for parks and playgrounds the proper housing of the poor of the city, and the suppression of the smoke and dust nuisances, crowded together as people are in the cities, the welfare of each individual depends in a large measure upon the welfare of all, hence the problems of public sanitation are matters in which all are vitally concerned, sanitary conditions of the home, the home, being the feeding and resting place for the entire family, is the most important factor in one's physical, as well as moral, environment, 
For this reason there is no place where careful attention to hygienic requirements will yield better results. Much of the danger from germs may be prevented by instituting and maintaining proper sanitary conditions in and about the home. One of the first requisites of the home is a suitable location for the house. The house should be built upon ground that is well drained, and if natural drainage be lacking, artificial drainage must be supplied. It should not be situated nearer than a quarter of a mile to any marsh or swamp and, if so near as that, it ought to be on the side from which the wind usually blows. A stone foundation should be provided, and at least 18 inches of ventilated air space should be left between the ground and the floor. Ample provisions must be made for pure air and sunlight in all the rooms. The cellar, if one is desired, needs to be constructed with special care. It should be perfectly dry and provided with windows for light and ventilation. Adequate means must also be provided, by sewage pipes and other methods, for the disposal of all waste. Where drainage pipes are provided, care must be taken to prevent the entrance of sewer gas into the house and also the passage of material from these pipes into the water supply. The placing and connecting of sewer pipes should, of course, be under the direction of a plumber. The water supply, since water readily takes up and holds the impurities with which it comes in contact, it should be exposed as little as possible in the process of collecting. Where cistern water is used, care must be taken to prevent filth from the roof. Figure 168. Water pipes, or soil from getting into the reservoir. Water should be collected from the roof only after it has rained long enough for the roof and pipes to have been thoroughly cleaned. The cistern should have no leaks figure 169, and the top should be tightly closed to prevent the entrance of small animals and rubbish. Figure 168 Figure 168 Contamination of cistern water by birds nesting in the gutter trough. Shallow wells are to be condemned, as a rule, because of the likelihood of surface drainage figure 169 and water from springs should, for the same reason, be used with caution. Deep wells that are kept clean usually may be relied on to furnish water free from organic impurities, but such water often holds in solution so much of mineral impurities as to render it unfit for drinking. The presence in water of any considerable quantity of the compounds of iron or calcium makes it objectionable for regular use. Figure 169 Figure 169 Sources of Contamination of Cistern and Well Water Illustration shows liability of contamination from surface drainage and from entrance of filth at top. Hygienic housekeeping. However carefully a house has been constructed from a sanitary standpoint, the constant care of an intelligent housekeeper is required to keep it a healthful place in which to live. Daily cleaning and airing of all living rooms are necessary, while such places as the kitchen, the cellar, and the closets need extra thoughtfulness and, at times, hard work. Moreover, the problem is not all indoors. The immediate premises must be kept clean and sightly, and all decaying vegetable and animal matter should be removed. Home sanitation consists, not of one, but of many, problems, all more or less complex. None of these can be slighted or turned over to a novice. Destruction of infectious material. At times the housekeeping has to be directed especially toward hygienic requirements, such an occasion being the sickness of one of the inmates with some contagious disease. Unless special precautions are taken, the disease will spread to other members of the household and may reach people in the neighborhood. Not only must great care be exercised that nothing used in connection with the sick shall serve as a carrier of disease, but germs passing from the patient should, as far as possible, be actually destroyed. All discharges from the body likely to contain bacteria, 
should be burned or treated with disinfectants and buried deeply at a remote distance from the water supply to the house. After recovery all clothing, bedding, and furniture used in connection with the sick should be disinfected or burned. The room also in which the sick was cared for should be thoroughly disinfected and cleaned. In some instances the woodwork ought to be repainted and the walls repeppered or calcined. The purpose island of course, to destroy all germs and prevent, by this means, a recurrence of the disease. Fumigation, to destroy germs in the air or adhering to the walls of rooms, furniture, clothing, etc. Fumigation is employed. This is accomplished by saturating the air of rooms with some vapor or gas which will destroy the germs. Fumigation is quite generally employed in the general cleaning after the patient leaves his room. This, to be effective, must be thorough. Formaldehyde is considered the best disinfectant for this purpose, and it should be evaporated with heat in the proportion of one half pint of the 40% solution to a 1000 cubic feet of space. Since formaldehyde is inflammable and easily boils over, it has to be evaporated with care. It should be boiled in a tall vessel a tin or copper vessel which holds about four times the quantity to be evaporated over a quick fire. The room being tightly closed openings around windows and doors plugged with cotton or cloth. After three or four hours the room may be opened and thoroughly aired. Since formaldehyde is most disagreeable to breathe, one should not attempt to occupy the room until it is free from the gas. This will require a day or more of thorough ventilation. Facts relating to the spread of certain diseases. The problem of preventing disease in general often resolves itself into the problem of preventing the spread of some particular disease. It is then of vital importance to know the special method by which the germs of this disease leave the body of the patient and are conveyed to the bodies of others. Some of these methods are novel in the extreme, and are not at all in accord with prevailing notions. Particularly is this true of that disease known as malaria, or malarial fever. This disease, so common in warm climates and also prevalent to a large extent in the temperate zones, is due to animal germs protozoa, which attack and destroy the red corpuscles of the blood. These germs, it is found, pass from malarial patients to others through the agency of a variety of mosquitoes known as anopheles. In sucking the blood of a malarial patient, the mosquito first infects her own body. 131 In the body of the mosquito the germs undergo an essential stage of their development, after which they are injected beneath the skin of whomsoever the mosquito feeds upon. For the spreading of malaria, then, two conditions are necessary. First, there must be people who have the disease, and second, there must be in the neighborhood the special variety of mosquito that spreads the disease. If either condition be lacking, the disease is not spread. The malarial mosquito Anopheles may be distinguished from the harmless variety Culex by the position which it assumes in resting, as shown in figure 170. Figure 170 Figure 170 Mosquitoes in resting position. From Howard's mosquitoes, on left the malarial mosquito Anopheles, on the right the harmless mosquito Culex. Remedies against mosquitoes. The natural method of preventing the spread of malaria island of course. The destruction of mosquitoes. This is accomplished by draining pools of water where they are likely to breed, and by covering pools of water that cannot be drained with crude petroleum or kerosene. The kerosene, by destroying the larvae, prevents the development of the young. In communities where such measures have been diligently carried out, the mosquito pest has been practically eliminated. Other methods are also under investigation such as the stocking of shallow bodies of water with varieties of fish that feed upon the mosquito larvae. Figure 171 Figure 171 Stegomia The yellow fever mosquito after Howard Yellow fever, 
This scourge of the tropics island like malaria, caused by animal germs, it is also propagated in the same manner as malaria, but by a different variety of mosquito stegomia. Figure 171. The stamping out of yellow fever in Havana, the Panama Canal Zone, and other places, through the destruction of this variety of mosquito, affords ample proof of the correctness of the mosquito theory. Figure 172 Figure 172 Consumption germs from the skin of one having the disease. Highly magnified and stained. Hubbard's consumption and civilization. Consumption, or tuberculosis of the lungs, spoken of as the white plague, was among the first diseases shown to be due to bacteria. Consumption is now recognized as an infectious disease, though not so readily communicated as some other diseases. Several methods are recognized by which the germs are passed from the sick to the well, the most important being as follows, 1. By personal contact of the sick with the well, especially in kissing, 2. By the sputum, or spit, which, if allowed to dry, is blown about as dust and breathed into the lungs 132 figure 172, 3. By means of objects drinking cups, tableware, etc. that have been handled by consumptives, 4. By infectious material associated with houses or rooms in which consumptives have lived, these methods of spreading consumption suggest the necessity for the greatest care, on the part of both the patient and those having him in charge. 133 The material coughed up from the lungs and throat should be collected on cloths or paper handkerchiefs and afterwards burned. The house where a consumptive has lived should be disinfected, repapered or calcined, and thoroughly cleaned before it is again occupied. The inside woodwork should also be repainted. The approaches to the house where the patient may have expectorated should be disinfected and cleaned. Since the germs are able to live in the soil, fresh lime or wood ashes should be spread around the doorsteps and along the walks. Typhoid fever, one of our most dangerous diseases, is caused by germs bacteria that enter the body through the food canal. They attack certain glands in the walls of the small intestine where they produce toxins that pass with the germs to all parts of the body. Typhoid fever germs spread from those having the disease to others, chiefly through the discharges from the bowels and the kidneys. The germs contained in these, if not destroyed by disinfectants, find their way into the soil, or into sewage, where they may be picked up by water and widely distributed. Finding suitable places, such as those containing decaying material, the germs may rapidly increase in number and from these sources find their way into the bodies of new victims. They are likely, on account of manures, to get on vegetables, on account of uncleanly methods of milking, to get into the milk supply, and from sewerage outlets, to get into the oysters that grow in bays and harbors near seaboard cities, but they are most frequently introduced into the body through the drinking of impure water. Diphtheria, also known as membranous croup, is caused by germs that attack the membranes of the throat. This most dangerous of children's diseases is spread chiefly by discharges from the mouth and throat. These should be collected on cloths and burned, or rendered harmless with disinfectants. The disease may be spread also by objects brought into contact with the mouth, such as cups, toys, pencils, etc. Children are known to have diphtheria germs in the mouth for some time after recovering from the disease, and should, for this reason, be kept away from other children until pronounced safe by the physician. The antitoxin method of treating diphtheria has robbed this disease of much of its terror, yet it not infrequently happens that the physician is called too late to administer this remedy to the best advantage. Since certain cases of diphtheria are likely to be mistaken for croup, the parent frequently does not realize the serious condition of the child, 
a croupy cough that lasts through the day, or a sore throat which shows small white patches, are indications of diphtheria, scarlet fever, measles, chicken pox, and smallpox, on account of the eruptions of the skin which attend them, are classed as eruptive diseases, as the eruptions heal, scales separate from the skin, and these are supposed to be the chief means of spreading the germs. Attention must be given to the destruction of these scales by burning or thoroughly disinfecting all objects, such as clothing, bedding, etc. that may serve as carriers of them. Those having eruptive diseases should be confined to their rooms as long as the scales continue to separate from the body. Vaccination. The method of preventing smallpox known as vaccination, which has been practiced since its discovery in 1796 by Jenner, has always proved effective. In some instances the sore arm causes considerable inconvenience, but this generally results from neglect to cleanse the arm thoroughly before applying the virus, or from contact of the sore with the clothing later. The virus should be applied by a physician and the wound should be protected after the operation. If discomfort is felt when it takes, medical advice should be sought. Isolation, or quarantining, is a most important method of combating contagious diseases. By removing the sick from the well many outbreaks of disease are quickly checked. Isolation of individual patients, and sometimes of infected neighborhoods, is absolutely necessary, and while this works a hardship to the few, it is frequently the only safeguard of the many. The community, on the other hand, should make ample provision for the care of the afflicted in the way of hospitals, or sanitaria, and if it is deemed necessary to remove people from their homes, they should not be subjected to unnecessary hardship where one is sick from some contagious disease in the home and there is liability of communicating it to the other members of the family. Room isolation should be practiced. Infection cannot spread through solid walls, and where the doors, and the cracks around the doors, are kept completely closed and the usual precautions are observed by those attending the patient. The other inmates of the house can be protected from the disease, the physician and his work. In combating disease the services of the physician are a prime necessity. The special knowledge which he has at his command enables the conflict to be carried on according to scientific requirements and vastly increases the chances for recovery. He should be called early and his directions should be carefully followed. Everything, however, must not be left to the physician, for recovery depends as much upon proper nursing and feeding as upon the drugs that are administered. Of great importance is the saving of the energy of the patient, and to accomplish this visitors should, as a rule, be excluded from the sick room. Precautions in recovery from disease. Many diseases, if severe, not only leave the body in a weakened condition, but may, through the toxins which the germs deposit, cause and hold harm if the patient leaves his bed or resumes his usual activities too soon. Especially is this true of typhoid fever, 134 diphtheria, scarlet fever, and measles, rheumatism and affections of the heart, lungs, kidneys, and other bodily organs frequently follow these diseases, as the result of slight exposure or exertion before the body has sufficiently recovered from the effects of the toxins. To guard against such results, certain physicians require their patients to keep their beds for a week, or longer, after apparent recovery from diseases like typhoid fever, diphtheria, and scarlet fever, relation of vocation to disease, with a few exceptions, the pursuit of one's vocation, or calling in life does not supply either the quantity or the kind of activity that is most in harmony with the plan of the body. Especially is this true of work that requires most of the time to be spent indoors, or which exercises but a small portion of the body. 
The effect of such vocations, if not counteracted, is to weaken certain organs, thereby disturbing the functional equilibrium of the body a result that may be brought about either by the overwork of particular organs or by lack of exercise of others. Herein lies the explanation of the observed fact that people of the same calling in life have similar diseases, a special problem for the brain worker, farthest removed from those forms of activity which harmonize with the plan of the body, and which therefore are most hygienic, is that class of workers known as the professional class, or the brain workers. This class includes not only the members of the learned professions law, medicine, and the ministry but a vast army of businessmen, engineers, teachers, stenographers, office clerks, etc. A class that is ever increasing as our civilization advances. It is this class in particular that must give attention to those conditions that indirectly, but profoundly, influence the bodily well-being and must seek to obviate if possible such weaknesses as the occupation induces. The remedy lies into directions that of spending sufficient time away from one's work to allow the body to recover its normal condition and that of counteracting the effect of the work by special exercise or other means. In many cases the first symptoms of weakness indicate a suitable remedy. Thus exhaustion from overwork suggests rest and recreation. The diverting of too much blood from other parts of the body to the brain suggests some form of exercise which will equalize the circulation. If feebleness of the digestive organs is being induced, some natural method of increasing the blood supply to these organs is to be looked for and effects arising from lack of fresh air and sunlight are counteracted by spending more time out of doors. Exercise as a counteractive agent, in counteracting tendencies to disease and in the maintenance of the functional equilibrium of the body, no agent has yet been discovered of greater importance than physical exercise. When applied systematically and persistently, this may consist of exercises that call into play all the muscles of the body, or which are concentrated upon special parts. When general tonic effects are desired, the exercise should be well distributed, but when counteractive or remedial effects are wanted, it must be applied chiefly to the parts that are weak or that had not been called into action by the regular work. Unfortunately, health is sometimes confused with physical strength and exercise is directed toward.